This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Launchpad on Business Radio. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Launchpad. You're listening to Launchpad here on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School. And I'm joined, as has been our practice lately via Zoom, by my co-host Rob Connybeer, a founder and managing director of Shasta Ventures, a leading Silicon Valley venture capital firm. And Rob and I have been sheltering at home, and we've found that doing this show weekly has been a really welcome relief from being by ourselves. So we're doing our part to flatten the curve, but we also want to share our insights and thoughts on the COVID-19 crisis and its relationship to entrepreneurship. Until we're back live in the studio, we're going to bring you a mix of fresh content recorded from home, and then the best of Launchpad from the last couple of years. Rob. Where are you? You're bet you're on the island. Yeah, I'm still up on Orcas Island right now, and I've been up here for the better part of a couple of months. Orcas Island is pretty close to Canada. It's further north than Seattle, if you can imagine that. And it's been an interesting experience. Over the last week, have been thinking a lot about what does the future of venture capital look like from several different perspectives. And with our firm, we reached a milestone this Monday, which is we had our eighth partner meeting in a row via video conference. And that was where everybody participated remotely. And for those people that aren't familiar with this ritual in venture capital, I'm sure you're familiar with this. There's something called the Monday partners meeting, and it's almost like attending church. It's something that people that are in venture capital go out of their way to attend the partners meeting in person in the office. And people even arrange their schedules months in advance, years in advance to make sure that they're around on Mondays, even if they're traveling the other days outside the area. And it's been interesting to see how the meeting has changed, decision-making has changed, et cetera, in light of people not being in person in the office on Mondays. So how has it changed? And by the way, I didn't know you were such a churchgoer. That's news for me. I... Well, I, I may be remembering more of when I was when I was growing up and uh, learning about communion and all those things. It would be a fairly religious thing to go every Sunday to the yeah. Episcopal Church in my neighborhood. But it's a similar ritual. And mm-hmm. it's interesting because it's something that the vast majority of venture capital firms have, they may not have it on Mondays. They call it the Monday meeting. That's probably 80, 90% of firms, but it's when everybody gets into a room and makes major decisions about the firm. So what have you noticed? How is it different? So one of the things that I've seen, I think number one is that the most important thing is to have engagement of the people that are party to Mm -hmm. the decision, deep engagement. And having video conference is a pretty good way to enforce it because you can tell from body language, at least from video, whether people are engaged in the conversation or they might be distracted or working on email or something else while they're listening to an audio only call. Well, wait, oh, I see. So your argument is you're comparing it to audio, to calling. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's a, it's a, it's really, it's a, it's a huge difference and you can 
see people and you might not get perfect body language, but you get pretty good body language mm -hmm. and whether somebody's enthusiastic about something or has reservations. And it's not just that partner meeting, it's the meetings that we have with prospective entrepreneurs, with mm -hmm. current entrepreneurs. And it, it's been a real adjustment in a lot of ways because when you've been doing something for 20 years, I've been doing this for 20 years and really only about one in five meetings where I would call in to go to a place and start making decisions about investing tens of millions of dollars by video conference is a very strange feeling after having yeah. done it in person for a while. It, is there anything that's better about the video conference? I mean, you're comparing it to a phone call, which I, I can understand, but anything that's better about than, than doing it in person? Well, one thing that I do like is it tend, it feels like it's shorter than it used to be. Mm -hmm. So the meetings often went through lunch and I'm finding that we get to the crux of issues faster than we did in the past. There's, for some reason, people seem to be more efficient in this process when, when we're doing it online. And the other thing that I think is important, and I don't know what changes over time, is a video conference works well when you know the people already and you've had a lot of interaction with them. What I don't know and what I've been thinking about a lot is how does it work when you're meeting people for the first time and you're building a relationship that's purely based on video mm -hmm. and audio as opposed to in-person interactions? And it really goes to the core of early stage seed and series A investing is really getting to know the people. And it's a completely different feeling that you get when you're interacting with people over video than in person. It's still the case. It's still efficient. You can make good decisions, but it, the cues and things you pick up on, you, you don't have the same things that you have in person. Yeah, but I wonder, I wonder if it makes the more relevant cues more salient and the less relevant cues less salient. You know, I, I wondered, you know, if somebody's, I don't know, five pounds overweight, well, we're all five pounds overweight, somebody's 20 pounds overweight, you don't, you might not notice it on video, and it's not really relevant, right? But you might notice it in person. You know, there's a related question I wanted to ask you, which is, I, I wonder whether we're going to be able, whether, whether profession, firms that are primarily comprised of professionals are going to be able to noticeably measure changes in productivity. And that, of course, opens up all kinds of questions, like can they measure productivity in the first place? But uh, assuming they can, what will be the implications? Will people find, will firms find that they're dramatically more productive or perhaps less productive? Well, I think at the end of the day, most professional services firms. So if you think of something like accounting or you think of investment banking, there's pretty clear measurable items mm -hmm. that you have during the year. And those could be billings. It could be hours that you've done. And for example, if you're in a law firm uh, at the end of the year, when investment banking firms distribute their bonuses, they take a look to see how much revenue did you generate for the firm. With venture capital firms, it's a lot trickier and it's much more long-term because the ultimate measure of whether you're any good at what you do is how much cash do you return yeah. on cash invested. But that period is really measured in eight to 10 year increments, yeah. not over the course of a couple of years. And 
in venture, it's not just the decision making that you make when you say, yes, I want to invest and you do due diligence, but it's also building the deal flow, getting to know the sources of capital, building those relationships. And what I've found is video conferencing has been a great way to deepen existing relationships. Mm -hmm. And there's something about this shared crisis that we're in right now that when you call somebody and you often, well, actually most of the time you reach them in your home, in their home, it leads to a different connection than people have had in the past. And I think it's much deeper than it's been with these casual interactions that you might have. But at the same time, at least for myself, and I'd be interested to hear what you're finding or what other people are finding, I'm not meeting a lot of new people right yeah. now. For the most part, it's about existing relationships, not new relationships. Yeah. And the core of venture capital is about constantly building new relationships so that you're learning new things and you're helping bring new people into portfolio companies. And you're always keeping your ideas fresh and perspective fresh. And that's a lot harder to do if all you're doing is talking to people you already know. Yeah. But you know, it, it seems like it ought, it need not be that way. I mean, it, the barrier to meeting someone in person is at least 45 minutes, right? You got to walk down to Starbucks or whatever and, and, and sit down. I, it's hard to imagine that taking less than 45 minutes out of your life. Yeah, that's, on the other hand, that's true. You could do it. You could do it in 15 minutes. So I wonder if there's actually an opportunity there for. Well, kind of that's true. That's, that's true, but when you meet people, there's a couple of ways in which you do it. One is networking events. And yeah. if you're at a conference or something, you have a whole series of one to three minute interactions. And for a venture capitalist that's at a conference, you might have 60, 70, 80 yeah. interactions over the course of a day, which is a lot harder to have in this sort of format that we have right now talking over Zoom. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. I'm Carl Ulrich, and I'm speaking with Rob Connybeer. So, Rob, there was a lot going on in, in, in the tech world this week. I want to ask your opinion on a few of the, uh, the events. So, so, one of the big ones, Airbnb yesterday laid off 25% of its workforce and had more recently taken a big down round in financing. And I wonder, I mean, there's this specific question about companies that are hit directly by the coronavirus, like Airbnb. But, but I can't help but juxtapose that against companies like Microsoft at all-time highs. And I, and I wonder whether, in fact, it is going to be possible for the high-flying tech companies to maintain this kind of success when the whole middle of the economy is being decimated. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think... If you're a foundational company and you're really providing the infrastructure for commerce going forward and you have more and more virtual commerce, I think that the big titans in that area, whether you're talking about Microsoft or whether you're talking about social media titans like Facebook or you're talking about people that handle physical delivery of goods like Amazon, they'll continue to grow and thrive or at least stay treading water. I think the bigger question that people really don't know right now is what's going to happen to the macro economy and overall aggregate demand mm -hmm. six months from now, nine months from now, 12 months from now. And I think the numbers that have been coming in are 
about GDP being down four or five percent in the first quarter. And I'm sure a lot of that's dragged down by certain sectors. You mentioned Airbnb, people traveling and people staying in hotels and people renting cars. Those industries are down 80, 90 percent. Yeah. The only reason that they're not down to zero is because people are still renting cars to get around cities because maybe they don't want to get in the back of a Lyft or an Uber or take public transportation. They don't own a car. But I think you're going to see this massive bifurcation between companies that are, and, and I think this really cuts to transportation because it's such enormous part of our economy overall, but transportation where you're moving people around, that's been decimated. That's where yeah. you look at something being down 80, 90, 95%, and that's the entire travel industry. But when you look at moving stuff around, freight around, cargo around, that hasn't been hit much at all. That's really more in the five to 10% down maybe sort of range, but not a lot more because we still all need groceries. You can, you've heard the numbers from Amazon that they're looking at volumes that look like Black Friday right now. And I think a lot of it is going to be bifurcated in this economy going forward where there are going to be haves and have nots in terms of companies that have plenty of demand, such as fitness companies and other companies such as transportation for consumers and people that'll be hit for quite some time. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, you gave me a, a nice segue into another bit of news that really caught my attention, uh, which was that a very interesting Silicon Valley company that you and I have both followed boosted boards just went out of business. So they're the powered skateboard business. And they in founded in 2012, you saw them all over the streets of San Francisco. I would have thought the personal transportation technology, uh, scooters, bikes, and so forth would be increasing during the crisis. What, what's your take on the future of our personal mobility? Yeah, I think a lot of it depends on depends on how people feel about using anything that's shared. Mm -hmm. So with scooters, the first thing I think about is when I go to touch the handlebars, who's touched it before me? Mm -hmm. And I'm really, really keyed into that right now. So it might sound a little awkward, but what do I do? Do I carry wipes? Do I wear gloves? If I'm wearing gloves, do I make sure I don't touch my face? There's that. But then operationally for companies like that, if you look at the juicers, the people that gather the scooters mm -hmm. at the end of the day and then charge them and then distribute them again, they're thinking about the same thing. So you have to, somewhere that gets incurred in the cost of delivering the service. And also since people are, for the most part, going out to go get groceries or essential trips that they need to do, you don't have people commuting the way that they did before. So I think that in the long term, looking over the next four or five years, I think all of these things bounce back. I think people will want to travel again, but whether it's Lime or Bird or somebody else that delivers the scooters, that's really the big question. I don't think it's really a question of whether scooters survive and yeah. people will want to use scooters in four or five years. It's really more a question of, are the companies that are providing those services, those products today going to survive? And I think the answer for a lot of these companies is no, unfortunately. Yeah. You know, it's uh, if, if you're right, and there isn't going to be 
a macro shift in consumer behavior. We're all going to become more germaphobic. I wonder whether there's an opportunity for someone to rise from the ashes with a clean sheet of paper and just say, okay, what do we learn from all of the bike share, scooter share, personal mobility experiments? And how would I do this if I were starting over? Because there's a good chance there'll be no one left when this is over. Yeah, well, they'll be around, the bikes will be around, the technologies will be around, and people will want the service. And the real question is what happens to the equity holders along the way? You know, do they keep getting washed out because people want that service? And I also suspect that going forward, when you start to look at shared mass transportation, buses, trains, planes, et cetera, it's going to be a lot more expensive to operate them because having better cleaning standards and sterilization, whatever you want to call it, to, to clean these up, that's going to be a more permanent thing because people are going to be more keyed into, hey, am I just catching the ordinary flu because I'm close to other people, mm-hmm. et cetera. And when I think about cities and what's in between having as many subway stops and uh, frequency as you had in the past, as opposed to, do you start to make scooters easier to use? And do you make alternative forms of shared transit easy to use that are more uh, discreet, like Ubers, et cetera? I think you'll see that actually uh, coming more and more because at the end of the day, it's it's more social distancing than being packed like sardines into a subway car. Yeah. No, in fact, as I think you know, I my first entrepreneurial venture was a scooter company, Zooter, and we're still in business. We've been in business for 20-something years. We had our best month in our 20-year history in April because a bunch of New Yorkers said, I'm not getting on that subway car. I'd rather kick the scooter around Manhattan than get in a get in the subway. Yeah. yeah, and one of the things that I've seen, especially after moving to Seattle, after being in the Bay Area for a while, is there are some companies in regions outside of San Francisco, a lot of companies that they really have to scrap and figure out how do I acquire customers and how yeah. do I build a profitable business without a lot of capital available. And I think when you look at a company like Boosted Boards, which I've respected the founders and the team there a lot. I think they've built a great technology. The the products are fantastic, but they were always premium, highly expensive products that required a high cost customer acquisition. And then you have companies like Rad Power Bikes up in Seattle, where on a relatively small amount of capital, they've been able to build a significant e-bike business that's pretty close to profitability. Yeah. And at revenue levels that boosted boards never hit. So I think that in any area that you're in right now, especially in transportation, you you just have to think about how do I get my cost base as low as possible, even Mm -hmm. if it means I'm not growing my revenue as quickly as I might think I need to, because a huge part of winning the game at the end of the day is to still be in the game at the end of the day. It's almost like dodgeball. If you think about dodgeball, (laughs) Probably the best way to win a game of dodgeball is to make oh, sure you're one of the last couple of people yeah. in dodgeball, not yeah. necessarily the one taking out the other players. Yeah. All right. Well, let me, let's look at another corner of the transportation space. I, I wonder whether the crisis is going to prevent an opening for autonomous vehicles or maybe another, another way to think about it would be special purpose vehicles. I'm thinking of companies like Zooks and other companies that are 
building vehicles that are simply designed to move people around, whether autonomous or not, as opposed to sharing a Prius, uh, having your Uber guy driving his own, own Prius. What are your thoughts on, on that? Well, I think to a certain extent, given the time frame that I expect autonomous vehicles to be available and deployed in any widespread basis, it's going to be pretty well beyond the current COVID crisis. Yeah. I think you're talking about three to five years. So the practical, I'd say, implication or effect on autonomous vehicle startups right now is just availability of capital. Can yeah. they raise the capital? Can they do that? They still face a lot of the same sanitizing changes so or challenges that you have for Ubers and Lyfts today because you still need to clean the door handle. You still need to clean the inside of the car. Somebody might have breathed uh, or coughed onto a surface in the car just mm -hmm. before you get in. So you still have that type of challenge that you have to hit. And, and I think that there will be good solutions for sanitizing, but it's, it's still pretty, pretty darn challenging to do it in a way that consumers believe. Do you, do you remember how motels used to have on the toilet seats, they'd have oh, that strip yeah. of paper yeah, and they would yeah. say, what, what did they say, like sanitized? Or yeah, yeah, yeah. they would say that with dry cleaning, et cetera, because part of the challenge is even if you're cleaning it, let's say you're a car rental company and you are religiously cleaning everything, every surface in the car, how does the consumer know right. that that car has been cleaned? And then they think to themselves, you know, the people that work at these companies aren't necessarily the highest paid people. And right. They're playing stereos and they're a little relaxed. How do I know they actually hit the steering wheel and the gear shift level, you know, lever in every car? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good question. I have one of these, uh, this device called phone phone soap that uses UVC uh, uh, to disinfect the phone. But I got to tell you, it could be any light in there and I wouldn't know. I don't have a way of detecting whether it's actually killed killed the virus. Sometimes I wonder if it would be good to just have a helmet cam video. So whoever is <laughs> doing it in the car and you have an AI overlay where you can actually see, did they touch everything? Yeah. Did they clean everything in the car or the vehicle or the whatever? All right. Well, I got a couple things I want to share that I, I saw today that I just thought were super cool. So let's see if we get time to to talk about them both. But the first is there's a, a really interesting research project at Stanford in the University of Michigan, uh, Stephanie Loeb and Krista Wigginton. And what they are able to do is detect the viral load, the COVID-19 uh, load in, in wastewater, in sewage plants. And what I think is so cool about that is you can imagine a nearly real-time meter on, on a quite small community, even at the level of a building, that would tell you immediately what the level of viral load was. And it seems like th that kind of technology could be quite instrumental in helping us manage the, uh, this delicate two-year period where we're trying to control the virus. Yeah, I think something like that's interesting. I think if you're working on something like that as a startup, you're thinking to yourself, not only how do I detect COVID-19, but how do I put an infrastructure in place that might be able yeah. to detect other pathogens in the future yeah. and rapidly do that. And then also, if you're in an apartment building, you probably want to figure out how do you actually figure out which units you actually right. have issues in and which ones you don't have issues in. And I think as you, you 
you mentioned on a prior show, this has actually been a pretty significant transmission path is actually um, fecal matter after, yeah. uh, you know, for, for people in these uh, shared apartment buildings. Yeah, you know, the as I've been looking at more at the opening up uh, scenarios that people have been talking about, it, it seems increasingly clear that that a lot of the things we're doing are mostly symbolic and that there's some really big ones that that is sort of an 80-20 problem. And the big ones that that at least I've been able to discern, first and most probably most important is that when someone with the virus is detected that they are isolated. I mean, most of the transmission currently appears to be happening in households. And you think about it, that's sort of obvious. But if you allow people to go back home, you've automatically just infected a few other people. So that that that's one. Um, the the second one is just the size and duration of the gathering. So certain kinds of restaurants, sit-down restaurants, are much worse than a Starbucks, uh, for instance. And then the third is is masks. And we might be able, to, if we were just to do those things, uh, to get most of the way there and allow us to open up a lot of other activities. What what are your thoughts on this on these debates that are raging now about whether we can open up and how we can open up? Yeah, I don't think there's a lot of debate about whether the things that you're talking about work, because it isn't just looking at China, it's looking at other places in Asia right now, Singapore, Taiwan, South Korea. They've shown by using these relatively low-tech things, but having the discipline to roll it out across the society has had massive, massive positive impact. And when you put the three things that you're talking about together with testing, testing it has a huge impact. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, testing you have to have, it, it completely complements it. But I don't think it's a real, uh, I would say sacrifice of individual liberties to require anybody that's in public to wear a mask. I mean, it's really, you could argue that today you require people to wear clothes when they go yeah. out. So really what you're doing is you're saying, we wanna make sure that you just don't make people sick around you. And this has been shown to be very, very effective in societies around the world right now. So what do you, how optimistic are you that we'll be able to open up back, back up and keep our knot below one? Uh, unfortunately, I'm hearing too many stories right now about people that are refusing to wear masks in public. Yeah. And that's particularly troubling. And when you couple that with political leaders that refuse to set a good example on that front, I'm concerned that we're not going to have the compliance that would make an enormous difference, would allow us to reopen the economy without people being afraid, because it isn't just about allowing people that are fearless to go out. It's actually about bringing out the middle group of people and the people that are a lot more concerned into the economy if you want to get it going. And requiring people to wear masks in public seems like a very, very modest sacrifice to ensure that and to bring the consumer demand back overall. Yeah, you know, it's been really fascinating to watch this convenient control group, Sweden. Uh, and what people don't realize about Sweden, the, the myth is that they just said, let it rip and we're going to build uh, uh, herd immunity. But if you actually look at the reduction of mobility as reflected in the cell phone data, um, Sweden has all reduced mobility almost as much as, as Finland and Norway. And it's because of fear. 
it's basically, it's not because of regulation, it's because people are afraid to go out. So to some extent, to your point, the regulation is sort of beside the point. It's will consumers go back to restaurants? Will they actually return? And that's what will be required to get the economy going again. Yeah, and if the death rates are high, you're not gonna have that. But if you have people wearing masks, it makes a huge difference. Yeah. All right, well, uh, let me let me tell you the second bit of good news, unrelated to COVID. So first, a tip to all our listeners. If you don't yet follow my colleague, Ethan Mollick, on Twitter, you need to. He's an amazing guy. So he's a really interesting, fun-loving professor at Wharton, Ethan Mollick, and his Twitter handle is emollick, M-O-L-E-M-O-L-L-I-C-K. But Ethan, every day, summarizes some academic literature related to entrepreneurship in a really concise form. And today's news was definitely the best news I've read, definitely in May, maybe all year. So here it is. If you want to boost your creativity, here are the three easiest ways to do it. Ready? Three separate controlled clinical trials on this. Drink coffee or tea. So caffeine is incredibly reliable, uh, booster of, of relief to hear that. Yeah. Okay. No, it gets better. The second, take a nap. So napping, I, double blind you know trials. Me. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I I must say I had a nap about an hour ago. All right. The reason I'm wide awake right now. Okay. What's the third one? I hope this is even better news. A stiff drink. No kidding. So so <laughs> a blood alcohol level, not not crazy, but 0.075 is what they use. 0.075% is what they used in the study. Uh, materially boosted creativity. And I thought, wow, my three vices. There it is, right there. Beautiful. <laughs> so follow like in the right thing. order as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're 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 complementary. Um, how about you? Any good news? I would say probably the best news is that summer is upon us. It's beautiful outside up here and uh, ready to uh, go and cut down some more trees. Yeah, I see those Douglas fir behind you. It's pretty amazing. Uh, or, or cedars or junipers, whatever they are, they're, be- they're beautiful. All right, Rob. Well, we're, we're amaz- amazingly, we're, we're out of time. It was great, great to connect. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on again, Carl. <laughs> right. Hey, maybe I can someday get on the show too. Maybe you'll host me next week. Yeah. <laughs> we'll do that next week. <laughs> All right. Okay. All right. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.